Hello, friends. Welcome to The Rev Up, where we talk all things revenue growth for business. Uh, anybody who is responsible for marketing, sales, account management, any of these things that impact uh, revenue growth, you are absolutely in the right place. Uh, hopefully, we can teach you what's working, what's not, what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, uh, and have a little bit of a fun and maybe a laugh along the way. Uh, my name is Ben Shipley. Uh, I've spent the last 19 years of my career uh, building and leading revenue generating teams all over the world. Uh, the Rev Up is brought to you by Trust the Process. At Trust the Process, we help small to medium-sized businesses grow by leveraging cost-effective skilled staff offshore, predominantly in the Philippines, uh, as well as helping people implement technologies like CRM systems, uh, things like uh, HubSpot. Uh, you can visit www.trusttheprocess.com.au if you would like to find out how we can help you uh, or just to ask some questions. Uh, today on The Rev Up, I am very excited to welcome my good friend, uh, actually somebody that I lived with in my early 20s, uh, one of the most clever people that I know, uh, a great guy, someone to have a bit of fun with, but somebody who is absolutely obsessed with the world of marketing, uh, with data, with attribution, with analytics. Uh, and so if you are the kind of person that wants to be able to figure out how do we go about figuring out what works and what doesn't in terms of your customers, digital paths, digital footprints, uh, where they go, why they go, uh, and how to make sure that they are spending more with you more frequently. Uh, John is a great person to listen to. Uh, we had an awesome time on this pod. We got into some fairly technical areas uh, and this is probably one of the longest recordings I've ever made. Uh, so I hope you guys all enjoy. Thank you so much. As I live and breathe, it's John McGowan. Oh, my Lord, what a privilege, my friend. Great to have you here. Oh, mate, it's so good to see you. How's things? <laughs> yeah, mate, living the dream, living the dream. Um, We've known each other for, and this is a bit of a theme on this show, by the way, <laughs> we've known each other for uh, over 15 years. I, I worked out it's almost 16 years ago that I moved to Sydney into a share house with you in our Tarman. Uh, 2005? No. Yeah, must have. 2005? No, must have been later than that. Maybe 2006? Yeah, because I was 23 when I moved to Sydney. Uh, it's just show, showing my age, almost 16 years ago. Uh, nice. We got, I got, I, I got introduced to that share house through a mutual friend of ours. Shout out to uh, Big Tommy. Big Tom, um, man, I love that guy. Tommy, I love you. <laughs> same, same. I love him more. Uh, and we, we catch up semi-frequently. We talk about life, often talk about business. Um, on this podcast, I, I really like to talk to people who I know um, are very knowledgeable and killing it, you know, in the world of business growth, whether that's in marketing, whether that's in sales, product, service delivery, wherever they're kind of driving business growth. Um, but I particularly like to talk to people who are also working in remote environments, right? We obviously provide offshore uh, team members in the Philippines for people in marketing, sales, et cetera. So anybody that's like kicking ass in the world of remote teams as well as growth is like... Uh, Match made in heaven, my friend. Tell me, my nomadic friend, where on planet Earth are you right now? 
Uh, so right now I'm in Glasgow. Uh, I arrived here right. uh, eight, seven, eight days ago. Um, the last 12 months have been, uh, there's a, a lot of movement, but I just spent a, uh, spent about a month, maybe maybe five, six weeks in Europe. There's a few destinations, but the main reason for being there was um, Super Week Analytics Conference that was in uh, right. about an hour out of Budapest. Uh, but before that, I've been uh, mostly based in, in Mexico, in Guadalajara. Mm. Um, and yeah, I've been remote for, for over seven years now. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's allowed me to, to, to do a, a ton of travel. And um, yeah. yeah, that gives me, that just gives me the feels, man. Like jumping yeah. on a plane it, it, with the idea of jet landing in a city that I've never been to before is addictive. And I just keep chasing it. And yeah. it's great. Yeah. You mentioned uh you were at Super Week. That's a like a digital analytics conference. Were, were there any uh interesting little tidbits you can share with our listeners? Any any cool takeaways you took? Oh firstly, massive shout out to um to Super Week as a whole. Uh, it was my, it's only my second time um attending, but but I actually loved it. The website is S-U-P-E-R-W-E-E-K dot H-U. Um, uh, Zoli and the team, they do a fantastic job, but in general, it's, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the best analytics focused conferences you can go to and not just in my opinion, but I feel like in the opinion of many people in the industry, um, plenty of really cool discussions, uh, both during the talks and also, you know, um, you know, at lunch or at the bar after, you know, once the day's finished, it's five days. So it's an onslaught. Mm. And so, I was just drained afterwards, mentally, mentally, physically. Um, just tons of people working on really cool stuff. And the did the the deeper you go in the analytics world, the more you realize how complex it can get. Yeah. And so, trying to be across everything is impossible. The only way you can really uh, stay across as much as possible is by sharing. And in, is by, I found some really cool stuff I want other people to know in the hope yeah. that someone else working in some other area can, can you know, provide, you know, a, a cool blog post or an article to the community for everyone else to share on. And that's, I think, one of the best things about the community is just that everyone is there, mm. you know, doing their part, sharing, collaborating. It's, it's amazing. I, I always find those sorts of events um, interesting because it's one of those things where, like the more you know about a subject, the more you know there is to know, and then the more you know that you don't know. Uh, and sometimes that feeds into a little bit of imposter syndrome. You're in a room with all these like super smart people, and you're like, oh my god, I can't believe, I can't believe how much there is to know. Do I know anything at all? Uh, and then you look externally outside of those communities to your customers and your clients and all that sort of stuff, and you go, oh, actually, no, I'm all right. I do. I know quite a bit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just looking it up now. It's, it's the, the Dunning Kruger effect. If anyone wants to Google yep. it, it's a, it's a lovely graph with this, this, this winding up down, and it's just, it's fantastic. It basically visualizes yeah, yeah. that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. That's the, re the reverse of the, um, the reverse of the imposter syndrome, right? The Dunning Kruger effect is the one where, uh, the, the less you know, and the less you know there is to know, the more you think you know when you know a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You'll have the x-axis is competence, the y-axis is confidence, and the your confidence is super high when you don't really know too much. And then the more you start 
realizing yeah. how much there is to know, you go down to this deep valley of despair. And as you start getting better and better and better, you start kind of trending back upwards to more confidence yeah. when you're kind of like, you know, I know how much there is to know now. I know I was super, you know, um, arrogant about all this world that I thought I knew a ton about. Then I realized how, how much I don't know. And now I've just come to accept that it's impossible for me to cross everything. So I'm, I'm in this comfortable state of knowing that I don't know shit. If that makes sense. <laughs> I get that all the time. I'm very lucky to spend a lot of time with, um, with some absolute marketing and sales and business growth geniuses. And I regularly sit there and go, holy crap, there's, there's levels to this thing. Um, your, your business, um, your business attribution digital is focused on helping businesses understand, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, understand and, and improve like the effectiveness of their marketing through, you know, tools like Google Analytics, Tag Manager, ads, amongst other things. But um, I will have already told our listeners about you in the opening for the show. Um, but I think you've had like a really interesting journey since all those years ago when we lived together in our Tarman and then Lane Cove and all that sort of stuff. How did you get into the world of marketing, data and analytics? And how did you kind of get to this point, um, you know, running a business, helping other people understand and measure this stuff? So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, a long story, but I'm going to keep it as abridged as possible. Basically, um, I went back, back in when I was 24, I went nine months through Asia and I loved it. It was amazing. I, but I got back home and I just thought to myself, I, I can't, if I want to go do that again, I can't save up like a crazy person, then go and spend everything and then come back with no job and no money. There must be a way for me to continue doing this, but I can earn some money on the way. Um, when I, once I got back, I'm like, okay, I need to focus. Um, Sydney was amazing. I loved it, but I had too many distractions there. So I moved to Brisbane. It was a way to just kind of isolate myself and just see if I could figure that, figure it out. Um, I found a job uh, at a digital marketing agency. Um, I worked there for about a year or so, and that's where I kind of learned my Google ads um, and, mm. I, and Google Google Analytics was something that was available as well. But when I was at the agency, Google Tag Manager was released. I think it was 2013. And I kind of realized the potential of that, jumped on it and tried to learn as much as I could. Um, after about a year there, I then moved client side for two and a half years. I was at a streetwear company for about, uh, was it six months? And then I, I started working in a large travel retailer. Anyone from Australia will probably recognize the name Fly Center. Um, mm -hmm. so I was at fly center for a couple of years. Um, and it was really those two worlds of agency side and client side agency side allowed me to gave me exposure to the repetitive, uh, do this on this client then I can do it on that client working with very small businesses in that conversation. And then moving client side working for a fairly large company. I then was exposed to how big companies work. So with the, the small business conversation, I'd be speaking to like a, a mom and pop store, um, you know, maybe the one person that I was talking to was across everything. It's a little business that they were growing. When I was working, you know, client side for a large company, I then had experience with understanding, all right, there's dev teams, there's finance teams, there's marketing teams, there's, you know, design teams, mm. there's all kind of all different areas of the business. There's like, you know, there's like the data teams, you know, tech teams. And so I 
feel like the exposure to those two worlds was was super beneficial for me. Um, and then once I, uh, and then I kind of got to a point where I, I had the opportunity to take on some freelance work, um, and I jumped at the chance. I think it was just offering Google Ads for, for one of the guys I used to work with. Um, his friend needed some help, so I jumped in and started just kind of winging it, like. Uh, and that started coming along. I started coming along really well, and I kind of had that balance between full time and, and the, the, the the side hustle. And then um, it got to a point where the freelance work started becoming enough that I could justify that. Okay, I think this is going somewhere. Maybe maybe I should just like quit my job and focus on this full time. Um, but I knew that. I knew that doing that in Australia, like with the, the cost of rent, the cost of living, the cost of all that mm, kind of stuff yep. in Australia is, is, is high. Brisbane, not as much as Sydney, but still like cost mm. of living is pretty high in Australia. So I, so it, it kind of clicked. I was like, okay, if I can continue to do this, can offer Google ad services, Google analytics services, anything kind of in that world, I can do it from my laptop. Um, maybe I should give it a go. Okay, here's the plan. I'll save up as much as I can. I saved up like maybe oh, nowhere near enough. I think it was like three and a half or four grand or something Australian. Um, and I bought a one-way ticket to Bali and I quit my job and I, you know, flew back down to Sydney, said bye to my family, and I jumped on a flight to Bali and I was like, okay, I have my laptop, I've got a bunch of cash in the bank, I'm gonna just figure it out and see what I can do. Yeah. Um and and then yeah, and I, you know, I was I was in Bali for about 14, 15 months. And I decided to stay in Bali for that long because there was a um there was a uh, a remote working community uh, at uh Dojo Bali, which was uh uh co-working space. I I I I think it was 2016 that I left Australia, the August 2016. And so it's 2016, 2017, where I spent most of my time in Bali. And Dojo was um, crucial for my learning development. Um, I learned a bunch of stuff there, met some really cool people. And I was like, okay, this seems to be working. I'm going to carry on. And from there, I just kind of, it was remote from the very beginning. And the whole point of remote mm. was to be like, if I want to work and work heavily during the week, then at least on the weekend, I can wander around somewhere that I, I'm not familiar with and it's kind of cool. Mm. And that was the whole point of starting it. Um, anyway, fast forward, uh, traveled as much as I could. Um, but then slowly but surely a lot of the work came in. Uh, I couldn't keep on top of it. So I started to start finding others to take on some work for me. Um, and then slowly but surely over the years, I've been, you know, bringing, you know, highly skilled individuals on to assist with the services, maybe two I think maybe nearly two years ago, I went completely hands off. So I was no longer managing any client work. Um, and and the last two years have basically just been operating the company uh, and doing all the business administration. So that could be, mm. you know, a lead comes in, talking to them, figuring out where they want to go in the next 12 to 24, then building out what I feel is a suitable service for them. And then once they're happy with that, I make sure, of course, resourcing is fine. I then shift into delegation mode. There's introductions. Mm. And I'll still keep on top of a lot of the conversations. It may be jumping on calls for like strategy discussions. 
Um, but uh, but yeah, a lot of my focus now is, you know, the old working on the business instead of in the business, and that's been yeah. something that um, is incredibly difficult to do when you're when you've got a lot of work on. Yeah, you do forty hours a week, and then you've got whatever time you have to continue focusing on other areas. So yeah, yeah. that's kind of that's kind of where we're at now, I guess. I always I always um you see that so so much with um like technician type led businesses where somebody has a technical skill and that's what they build a business around. Um, quite often they realize later that the things that it takes to run that business aren't necessarily being good at doing that thing. Uh, there's all the other stuff that comes along with it that, that uh, yeah, totally different. Um, so that that's super interesting, man, because um, a lot of people struggle to find time and to find freedom because they build a business with the plan of eventually having freedom. But when you build something around something you don't currently have, you build the wrong model for it. But you started as remote from the start, which it seems like um, seems like kind of helped to make that a reality, you know, help to give you that freedom. Yeah. Yeah. It was always kind of, and I keep reminding me as I keep reminding myself as often as I can, like my work should support my life. Full stop. Mm. Yeah. I, I work to make money so that I can, you know, tick off the, the crucial aspects, like somewhere to sleep and somewhere to get eat. And then slowly but surely you build from there. Right. Mm. Um, and look, it's, I, I try and continually remind myself that the reason I work is to to support the life that I want. And that what that does is it means that you kind of have to pull back on work sometimes. I, I have to continually remind myself, like, pull back on the amount of work you're doing because, you know, if you're working too much then and you're not doing what you want to do outside of work, then it, it can be frustrating and can be challenging to... Yeah you know it's it's harder to justify the long hours if you're not happy outside of work doing what you want to do that's just something i've been focusing on a lot so yeah um businesses yeah, suck you hard. in man they suck you in and the more you give the harder it is to take that back right the harder yeah. it is to take it back yeah um so your your world is ultimately about understanding and measuring and improving marketing right what is what is your approach Give me the the macro version, the top line version. What is your approach to measuring marketing? There are a ton of ways. I think one of the biggest challenges these days is is understanding how best to report on these efforts. So, for example, if you're running ads through Google Ads or you're running ads through Facebook Ads, those two platforms provide you with a conversion pixel. So when someone takes an action, let's say, for example, it's an inquiry, um, you can add on a conversion pixel, normally via Google Tag Manager, but you can hard code onto the site, where as soon as the action is taken, a request is then sent through to the Google Ad servers or Facebook Ad servers um, in order to, to tie the click information from the ad um, to the action taken on the website. And if you tie those two actions, you can then say, right, so this marketing effort from this particular keyword that clicked on this ad, they then converted you know, within a day, within two or three days, within 15 days, whatever it might have been. And you can build reports from there. But the thing to know is that those third-party advertising platforms, they are always going to prioritize themselves with their reporting. 
So let's say, for example, as a user, I'm, you know, uh, I'm, on the, I'm on the internet, I see a Google ad. I've just searched for a particular item that I want. I click on the Google ad. I land on the website. I'm like, oh, that's cool, but I'm not ready to buy just yet, or I'm not ready to buy just yet. Then I might see a Facebook ad two or three days later. I click on the Facebook ad and then come through and I say, oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, I maybe dig deeper into the website, but I don't buy just yet, or I don't inquire just yet. And then after that, it turns out that the reason I search for them is because I've already got a pre-existing relationship with that company. I might get an email from that same company three, four days later. I click on the email, I jump through, and I eventually buy. So the challenge here is, especially if you've got email uh, conversion tracking set up, all three of those platforms are going to show you that a conversion occurred, and they're going to attribute that conversion to the efforts associated with your Google ads, your Facebook ads, your email. So you'll have three platforms all showing, hey, Google ads delivered a conversion. Oh, also Facebook ads delivered a conversion. Also email mm. delivered a conversion. And so straight away, you're like, well, I only saw one transaction or I only saw one inquiry on this particular day, but all three of those, which one should I be listening to? Which one, how do I attribute the value to those channels? And so ideally you're in a position where you try and find a, uh, uh, <laughs> you try and find a tool that allows you to deduplicate those conversions mm. because you don't want to attribute one conversion to multiple channels. And so that's kind of where a website analytics tool comes in. It allows you to, uh, it allows you to, Ideally, count the number of conversions, whether it's inquiries or transactions across the site. Um, and based on whatever attribution model you use within the analytics tool, it will then provide you with an understanding as to which of those channels delivered that conversion. Now, that's where it starts getting complicated. Do you, do you say, you know, do you attribute 100% of the value to the most recent touch point? So in the example that I gave, would email be responsible because it was the most recent channel that delivered that visit? And if we do attribute 100% of the conversion to email, are we saying that the Google ad click didn't provide any assistance? And we said that Facebook didn't provide any assistance? I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> so, then, so then you're like, well, maybe this last click model that we're talking about isn't the best way to attribute value to our channels. But then the next question is, well, how do we, which attribution model should we be? I'm, I'm going to be doing this a lot. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging question. And then you're kind of thinking, well, if we're not going to use last click, if we feel that's not appropriate, then what other attribution models can we use? Um, you know, maybe we should use a time decay model where the most recent touch point gets attributed the majority of the value. But the touch points before that are attributed value themselves, but it decays the further, uh, you know, the further away you get from that particular conversion point. So mm. the first touch point might get 10% of it, and then the second touch point, 20%, and then the final touch point is 60% or whatever it is. But then how do you then how do you build out that model? How are you then aware of every single touch point? And that's, I think, where a lot of this digital marketing world comes in and the, the obsession with companies trying to understand. Um, I want to understand every single touch point. I want to make sure I attribute value appropriately. But it's, it's, it was the promise 
that digital marketers delivered to companies. Everything's digital. We can collect everything. And that's not the case. Mm. It's not the case because, oh, sorry, go on, man. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I, I've seen quite a few companies in this sort of area think about it in a few different ways, but sometimes you just see everybody just overload and kind of measure everything and think about everything under one big pile uh, rather than thinking about it in terms of like, well, actually some of what I do creates demand for me. I'm educating customers. I'm teaching them how to do stuff. I'm teaching them how to win in this arena. I'm teaching them how to solve problems and all this stuff over here. Sorry, I should do it up here because there's a video. Uh, all this stuff over here like creates demand for me. Then there's like a path that they follow in order to be able to transact with me. And so like email is a good example of that. I might not have created the demand through email, but I reminded them of their ability to connect with a you know an end transaction point and they've clicked through and they've transacted and that's like the path and then there's the transaction channel too like they're not always going to transact through the website sometimes they're going to transact at an event or they're going to transact through uh facebook or they're going to somewhere else right and i i i just i see some people just pile it all together especially when they're starting and go these are all the same things and i want to attribute to one of them which one is making it happen for me and like, they might say organic search and my piece of content I've created are the same thing, but they're totally different pieces, right? Demand creation, demand capture. Um, do you see any of that kind of play into to how you kind of sort the puzzle out or is it a different way that you do it? Um, so I think one of the big challenges, especially in large companies, is you have teams dedicated to their own area of speciality. So you'll have mm. your paid search teams, you'll have your social teams, you'll have your email teams, you'll have your dev teams, you'll have, um, and and especially the bigger the company gets, the more a team wants to make sure that they are performing well. So mm. it makes sense that the social team will want to generate or will want to see reports that show that all of the social advertising, whether it's you know Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube type stuff, it, it makes sense for them to 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 showcase how well their team's performing. Mm. Similarly with the search team. Similarly with the email team. Um, so, in an ideal world, everyone be, would be aligned, and everyone would be like, you know, let's try and make sure that these reports are like as as accurate as possible, but especially in big companies, it, it just doesn't tend to work. There's always going to be conflict around our team is doing really well. I want to make sure that the rest of the company knows about it. Um, but, you know, it's um, it's challenging. And as you said, as you said, there's, there's the drive to say which channel is performing the best. Because I want to know, a CMO might want to know, how do I split out, you know, you know 100K worth of budget next month across a range of channels? Do I put more into Facebook ads? Do I put more into, you know, our Google ads team? Should we actually putting, you know, some of that budget towards our email team? Because it's not really like spend or budget associated with the email team, but there's of course, like, you know, the um, you employing people to do it. And then there's the yeah. agency side of things. So I think it's also important to factor Plus in. Tool, not tool just, like not, exactly. So you've got your ad spend. You've got the actual spend associated with using the tool itself. Maybe you're on the monthly subscription with a particular 
um, email tool. Um, maybe you're paying an agency to manage, uh, you know, paid spend for you. So you kind of, you kind of move. Ideally, you start moving away from the return on ad spend model, and you start factoring in all the other expenses that come into play. Um, mm. It's 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 challenging, and and there's so many there's so many dark spots around that you just can't factor in. The idea that you know there's there's challenges in the digital world. So, for example, if people are using privacy browsers and people are using ad blockers, then someone might land on the site, but an analytics request might not fire. The, the conversion request that is being sent through the advertising platform might not fire. Um, but, but then you just talk about offline. I mean, the standard challenge of trying to understand how effective a big billboard over a motorway is, like, you know, but it could be super effective. You never know. Mm. And I think like, yeah. you know, there are there are so many different ways to try and build out these reports, but as long as there's an understanding as to the limitations and they, and those limitations are factored into the discussions on, you know, budget allocation on, when it comes to the you know, efforts associated with building out the site, I think it's just being comfortable with, with a lack of data and yeah. just understanding that there are limitations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is an area that's, uh, pretty near and dear to my heart, to be honest, these dark spots, because, um, in the world of outsourcing and offshoring, right. For trust the process, a huge portion of our customers come from referrals, right. And they come from referrals from a whole bunch of places. We get referred through, you know, business networking communities, uh, through random Facebook communities, you know, small business communities, uh, LinkedIn, existing customers, all these places, right? And it's really hard to figure out where where those conversions are coming from through purely digital tracking. Um, and so something we've only really just started to implement is, um, is self-reported attribution, getting our customers to tell us where they heard about us and attributing their value back to that channel. Um, which actually is is interesting in a couple of ways. One, um, we can still capture all of the digital stuff. We can still see the paths they took. We can still see exactly how they got to us and how we managed to pick that up and capture that, that demand. Uh, but we also get to know why have they come to us in the first place? What did we do? Who told them? Uh, and all that sort of stuff, which then allows us to focus on um, trying to, pump up some of those, some of those channels. Um, but that has to be, you know, it's either through a customer filling in, uh, in a form, uh, and there's some interesting data coming out that actually form fills for self-reported attribution. Where did you hear about us? Don't have significant, uh, impacts on conversion rates on forms, uh, whereas a lot of fields do. Um, but it also means that like, you know, if a business networking community is sending us a ton of leads we go spend more time in there right whereas otherwise in the past we might have gone oh we'll spend more money on seo because that person googled our name you know is dark social something that sort of you know that element where people are referring each other they're having conversations they're speaking to their peers they're speaking to their colleagues uh and they're getting sent places is that something you're seeing as like a gap in what attribution can deliver on um, is self-reported something you've been looking into? Is um, 
Is there another way to do it? This is not my area of expertise, by the way. So uh, always looking for for better ways to do things. Yeah, fair. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like dark social in general. I, I mean, we're I say dark social mainly. Like, say for example, if you share a link with someone um, through a messaging app, uh, mm. they might click on the link and they'll arrive on the website. And whatever analytics tool you're using, it won't have any referrer data associated with that particular mm. um, with that particular user. So it's not going to say came through a WhatsApp chat or came through a Signal mm. chat. By the way, Signal Messenger, amazing. Everyone should be on it. Uh, but so you're you're always going to have a, a few challenges in that in that world. Um, there's a lot of discussion around attribution as a whole and how faulty it is and how impossible it is to actually build out a model that makes sense. And so there's a lot of discussion around like attribution is dead. <clears throat> I feel like attribution as a whole, the word attribution itself isn't unique to the marketing world. Like mm. I attribute um, value to any aspect of life, right? Um, uh, depending on the depending on the context. There are ways that I feel like, as I said, we should be comfortable with it, the gaps that we're we're not aware of. But there are alternatives to building out this very specific position-based time decay, you know, um, all these different types of attribution models. There are alternatives that you can utilize in order to try and understand um, how effective a particular channel is. Um, one of those is called... Um, uh, there's, a, there's a few words for it. Like you could call it incrementality or also known as like conversion lift. So the idea here is, you know, it really simplifying it. You know, we have a ton of traffic coming from uh, ads in this area. Uh, and so we've seen X conversions coming through on average per month for that same amount of ad spend. What happens if we cut the ad spend in half for the month? Do we see overall conversions, forgetting about where the conversion pixels fire, forgetting about all that like techie, like mm. nonsense. If we reduce ad spend as a whole within this channel by a significant degree, we're probably going to see traffic reduce significantly from that channel. We can see whether uh, we see a drop in traffic within our analytics tool, but does that actually result in a significant reduction in conversions or transactions. And also something mm. to take into account, just because you reduce ad spend for a month, doesn't mean you're gonna, if it is gonna have an effect, you, you, may, you may not necessarily see it immediately. That mm. might not take effect until the next month or the month after. It really depends on how long the life cycle or the conversion path is for your particular customer. For yeah. like small, cheap items online, people probably buy within five, 10 minutes of the website. But if you're buying mm. a car, if you're, you know, if you're looking into, you know, changing mortgage providers, that stuff takes time. So mm. understanding how much of an effect uh, a channel has on a site is very specific and very unique to the company itself, depending on yeah. what your business model is, depending on what industry you're in. So there's that idea. But there's also, I think also one other thing that is is crucial to understand is for example, you use a, a you might use an affiliate partner, and that affiliate partner is is um, going to try and promote your products or your services uh, in the hope that when someone lands on the website and purchases or submits an inquiry, um, you know, they will then maybe get a commission on the traffic that they send. Uh, but the challenge here is that 
And this is the challenge with ads in general. This is the challenge with marketing or branding in general. Maybe someone was going to buy the product anyway. <laughs> and they just happened to see an ad before they did. Yeah. Like, that's a, that's a serious question. Like, if I know that I'm going to buy something, I might buy something once a month, right? And every single month, towards the end of the month, I'll go and buy it. I might be in store, it might be online, whatever it might be. But I might happen to see an ad for the company three days before I buy. I'm like, oh, cool, I recognize that. Well, we're going to buy it anyway. But then your marketing reporting is going to show that, oh, wow, it turns out that user saw the ad and then bought. Oh, let's put more money to that. Is that really mm. is that really the right way to, to approach marketing as a whole? And so that's why when we're talking about incrementality or conversion lift, we're not looking at um, you know, conversions or transactions directly associated with that particular channel based on our digital reports. We're looking at a, on a high level. Reduce marketing spend here. What happens to all transactions or all purchases? Um, yeah. And there's, yeah, I've got, an, I've got another alternative. Another one is called um, uh, marketing mix modeling. Um, so some people refer to it as MMM. So the idea here is this is actually like an older tactic. I think it initially popped up. I think the term was coined like late 40s. And it was kind of used by uh, a lot of the big kind of, you know, um, uh, consumer packaged goods companies back in the day because they had a, a ton of data. But the idea here is to, to aggregate a lot of data. And it's the same idea. They're just taking aggregated data associated with particular channels. Um, and they're seeing how, you know, based on a, it's a statistical analysis, right? And they're seeing how efforts when it comes to marketing or promotional activity results in conversions, inquiries, transactions, revenue as a whole. So uh, there's a few really good resources that I can certainly link to if there's like show notes and stuff. Um, a shout out to uh, Jim Ginolio, who's got a fantastic newsletter. It's called, um, uh, the, the, the domain is mmmhub.org, mmmhub.org. Some really cool stuff in there. And I'll, I'll, if I can provide some links later, I will. Yeah, um, we'll, add, we'll, add a, we'll add a link in the show notes. Lovely. Sure. But it goes into that whole world of, of understanding that a lot of the data that we're dealing these days is messy and incomplete and, and you know, the collection mechanism associated with that data might have been flawed to begin with. So making decisions, very important decisions on how we, you know, continue to improve the site, how we, you know, make, uh, you know, marketing budget changes. Um, we don't want to do that on flawed data or flawed reports. So it's kind of these methods are stepping back from this data obsessed world and taking a higher view and just saying there are ways for us to make decisions. Um, we don't necessarily need all the data to be there. We don't necessarily need to know every single click that a user took and every time they visited the site and all that kind of stuff. You know, we can through some statistical analysis, through some kind of, as I said, kind of incrementality testing, there are ways that we can determine how effective our efforts are offsite in order to, you know, in the, in the hope that we can then make changes in the next three to six months in the hope that our efforts will be more effective when yeah. driving yeah. revenue growth through a company itself. Yeah. This is... Um... This is this is a good segue because I want to play I want to play a little game with you if that's okay. Uh, Are you playing a video game? What game are we playing? 
<laughs> no, we're not playing a video game. The game is called uh, "You're Talking Shit" or "You're Talking Sense." All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something at you that is just uh, Dunning Krieger effect in full effect. Right, I don't know really shit all about this, uh, but there's a couple of things that I've noticed, and I want to get your take on them. And you tell me whether I'm talking shit or whether I'm talking sense. Uh, and then maybe give us a little bit of color, you know, the the thirty second version of um, of why it works or why it doesn't. What you were talking about there in terms of like, um, you really got to take it fucking slow. Like it's such a patient game to figure some of these things out. Um, but I f- I feel like for a lot of smaller businesses that are a bit a bit data pool and and channel uh, limited. <laughs> It's such a slow game because they can't like section things out. Like if you've got a big enough pool, feels like you could create some sections within what within your acquisition processes and channels and go, all right, I'm going to try one thing on this one for the next three months and see if it makes any difference, get some more information, figure some stuff out and then play some bets. But with those smaller ones, like what the hell do you do? Do you, do you wait a year to figure out whether you can do anything about it? yeah that's always going to be the challenge i mean we're talking we're talking testing as a whole so we're talking like if i make a little change here within this particular channel how does that affect overall um with larger companies it can be well i won't say it can be easier but i think because of because of the data available to them if you've got hundred thousand people visiting a particular either a domain or a particular site within a certain period of time then then you can see within a short period of time whether or not a change made off-site or a change made on-site, how it had an effect on you know, uh, an action a particular user took. Um, because you've got a lot of data to deal with. If you see traffic come down significantly over the last three days compared to previous, then it kind of makes sense. At the same time, larger companies have a lot more touch points. They're doing a lot more things in the marketing world. They're utilizing a lot more channels. So that can also be very challenging when it comes to testing. So one of the one of the big challenges is I'll I'll, I'll chat about big, big big companies in a little for a little bit and then I'll go to small companies. With the larger companies, if you're going to be doing some kind of testing when it comes to sending traffic to a site, maybe you've maybe you're testing you know ten percent of the traffic going to a particular page goes to you know the control and the other ninety sorry ninety percent goes to the control and another ten percent goes to say the variant. That's what you're testing, right? Um, we need to make sure that the, the developers aren't going to be doing any changes to the site within that time. We need to make sure that if we're testing in uh, in paid search, that that the email team isn't sending like they're not doing some promotion or some some mm. special campaign to that page within a certain period of time, like you know. And that and there's so much comes into it when it's when it's like the messaging within the ad copy itself. Yeah. You know what 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 sort of users are we are we talking about when it comes to that? So that it can be it's easier and it's harder at the same time for larger companies. When it comes to smaller companies. That's the challenge, because if you're going to make any decisions, ideally decisions that are made on like, you know, if you find a particular insight within your testing process that has some level of statistical significance, you might need to wait for a certain number of users to go through that process. And that might take months. Mm. So it's challenging. It's super challenging for smaller companies. Those small businesses and and. This is another, am I, am I talking shit or am I talking sense? You, but you have to answer this time. You have to tell me whether I'm talking shit or sense, all right? That's the game. Don't, okay, cool. don't, break, don't break the rules, John. 
So this this brings me to another thing that I've I've seen. I think some I think some businesses do get um, the data wrong in terms of um, narrowing focus consistently. I've seen some businesses find that um, you know they they get a look at a bit of data and they go, all right, well Facebook ads are actually driving the majority of our uh, our conversions here. And so we're going to focus heavily all of our, because they're a small business with a small budget, we're going to focus all of our money on the channel that is converting for us. And they don't do a lot of testing. And I've seen businesses build to $10 million plus in revenue on maybe one major channel that they're generating revenue from. And then something changes. I hate to tell everybody, Facebook wants to make more money from you. And so over time, those leads are going to become less valuable for you because they'll either become more expensive uh, or they'll become more competitive. And so somebody that builds their, their business that way becomes key channel dependent because the data is telling them that's where they should put all their money. And then something changes and now there's no, no more ROI because the leads are more expensive or the, um, the algorithms changed and people aren't clicking anymore and they're fucked. I've seen it before. Does, do you ever see this happening or am I talking shit? No, you're not talking shit. I think it makes sense. I think when you're going to be testing any kind of ad platform, whether it's Facebook ads, Google ads, TikTok ads, you know, understandably, they're always going to try and make sure that you get as many conversions as possible when you first start so that it incentivizes you to spend more. But there's always going to be a point of diminishing returns. And that's not necessarily because you've reached every single potential buyer in the market. But, you know, the idea that, you're spending X a month returning these leads in no way means that you'll spend double that, therefore double the leads when it comes to advertising platforms. That's just simply not the case. Um, they are, I'm, I don't, I'm not necessarily saying there's an intentional manipulation to make sure that they keep the leads lower when you spend more, but understandably, especially with all the data that these companies have, um, the pool in which you're, you're trying to get uh, conversions or you're trying to get paying customers out of, um, the more you spend, the more the advertising platform needs to start expanding upon their targeting pool, their targeting area to find users that will potentially convert. Um, this is, okay, this is coming back to the Superweek uh, conference. Um, there was a talk that Russell McAfee did. Uh, Russell McAfee from ringside.io, really cool um, tool, check it out. He gave a presentation on the absolute bullshit that is Facebook ads reporting. So mm. if anyone if anyone is keen to dig into it, I highly, highly recommend you go and you seek out the documentation associated with uh, the reporting within Facebook ads. Look at all the... You know, we're talking about, you know, clicks uh, on a particular ad. You're talking about interaction. So, for example, when Facebook says these are the number of people that clicked on the ad, you know, interactions, you assume that's like, okay, well, the number of people that came through from Facebook ads, but not necessarily. Like, if I like the ad, that's classed as a click. You know, if I click mm. through the page, that's classed as a click. It's mm. not a site visit. And then you were talking about unique visits versus total visits and interactions in general. I'm not going to go deep into it, but the way Facebook reports on 
you know, conversions as a whole is, is deeply flawed. Um, and anyone running Facebook ads or any company that has an external running Facebook ads for them should look into that as, as deeply as possible and should really question the types of reports that are being provided to them, especially if those reports are coming from Facebook ads. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, coming back to what you were saying, certainly when, when you're continuing to push more budget into these, these tools, it could be Google ads, it could be any, any type of thing. There's always going to be a point where, you know, the return on investment um, starts to decrease as you start to push more in. Um, and there's so many reasons why that could be happening, but it's definitely important for, for companies to be aware of that. And taking that into account, maybe coming back to that incrementality conversion lift type thing, maybe if you're spending, you know, um, 50 grand a month on a particular channel and you're getting X revenue, what happens if you drop that spend by, by 30%? Maybe you can drop your spend by 50% and still get 70 to 80% of your leads or conversions. Yeah. I mean, certainly that's... seen that with AdWords a few times. Yeah. But once again, but then you have those conversations, whether it's like, you know, how do you tell your social team that they're cutting budget by 50%? Do you think they're going to be happy with that? Probably not. Because they're, they're, they're incentivized on total. Um, you know, is the problem is the problem the the KPI and the measurement for them sometimes like are we do we measure some of these teams incorrectly by just like you know sometimes companies just flat measure everyone by the number of leads they generate right and some of those channels shouldn't be exclusively for generating leads and shouldn't be trying to force people into your sales fund so I, I forget where this is from but but I love it. I think it's um as soon as as soon as you um as soon as you decide that a particular metric should be a KPI, a key performance indicator, it, it ceases to become a good metric. Mm. Because teams will start being incentivized on doing this, taking this particular action. This is what we're driving towards. Yeah. So uh, this could even come in for for, for sales teams. So like someone, someone calls in, uh, well, we just know that we're incentivized on successful purchases or, 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 you know, I want to move to the next level. But I know that there's a lot of data associated, that there's a lot of manual entry that comes in when I want to call. I need to ask these questions, all this kind of thing. But I'm incentivized towards, you know, uh, X actions a month or X actions a week. And I want to hit my target because I'm going to get, I'm, you know, I'm going to get a, you know, a bit of a, a a boost on my next paycheck because of that. So they might then they might then do whatever they need to do in order to reach that metric, in order to reach that target. Mm -hmm. The same same in the digital yeah. world. Like this is this is why it's a problem that most marketing teams aren't incentivized or measured based on revenue outcomes, right? They're incentivized to deliver, you know, in some, you know, maybe X amount of traffic, X amount of leads. Uh, but this really kind of like input centric measurement that doesn't necessarily have to bring a good result in order for the marketing team to be successful. You hear this complaint in a lot of businesses where you have marketing teams that are celebrated and salespeople sitting there going, the leads are shit, <laughs> right? And if you go and 
not in all cases. I certainly know many salespeople that complain for no reason. Uh, but in some cases, you go and you call those leads and you go, I'm not surprised the sales team aren't calling them. They are dog shit, right? Because the incentive is wrong. The incentive is to drive leads, a volume, a number of leads, not to drive people that actually might have a chance of buying a product. Um, not to have people actually convert to the to at, at the end of the funnel. Um, there's a lot of things you can do. I give the example all the time. Um, we help businesses build uh, like offshore appointment setting sales development teams, right? To, you have inbound leads come in, they call the inbound leads, they set up appointments for salespeople, right? Um, I've been saying for years, if you incentivize those teams based on the number of appointments they set, you better believe they're going to set a lot of appointments and you better believe that most of those appointments are going to be absolute bullshit, <laughs> right? You, it, to your point, you create sometimes unintended incentives and unintended consequences by measuring things a certain way. You know, the best intentions go in and sometimes the worst outcomes come out. Yeah. Like if a, if a team is, if a team is uh, incentivized on, uh, if a marketing team is incentivized on transactions, let's say, then, then someone coming to the website and buying a $6 product is equal to a thousand dollar product because mm, they're yep. incentivized on transactions, you know? Mm, yep. So then, and so, so then it's like, okay, well, well, let's do it on revenue then. All right. All right. Okay. Okay. The new KPI is revenue. So the marketing team is like, okay, which, which are the, the, which are the products that cost the most? Let's sell them. Let's just focus on them. Right. So they sell product A, which is like a thousand, a uh, thousand bucks. And then they sell product B, which is 1200 bucks. Um, but product A, only has a hundred dollar margin, whereas product B has a three hundred dollar margin. Mm. So, you know, um, you see it go the whereas, other way too. You see it go the yeah. other way where, um, you know, on your transactions point, um, where maybe it's like paid content downloads, for example, right? Mm. There's like a short course. There's a an ebook. There's a something that's paid, and maybe it's fifty nine dollars. Um, but the incentive is based on transactions or leads generated or whatever it is and watch that price point come down and down and down and down. And next thing you know, those things that were costing $59 are free, right? And we're hitting the volume easier, but the quality goes through the floor because you haven't mm -hmm. thought about the, the outcome. You haven't thought about like, what am I actually trying to drive here? And how do I measure that without creating an incentive for them to find the shortest path because that's what that's what that's kind of human nature what's the shortest path to get to the thing that i'm being measured on that i'm talking about all the time that creates a massive pain in my ass because my manager can't be bothered doing anything except manage me on kpis and mm -hmm. all they're doing is talking about get more leads get more leads get more leads get more transactions well i'll find a way to do it might not get a good outcome but i'll find a way you know what's that shortest point um I want to yeah. ask you. I want to ask you about um, two more things. Um, so the first one of the two is um, there's obviously so much to know here, um, and there's a lot of people that'll be sitting there going, "Well, I've got to the end of this podcast, um, and I really want to figure some of this stuff out for myself. I've got a couple of starting points. 
where where do people get started? Where do they go to start learning about this stuff to start making um, you know improvements and taking action? So yeah, I mean, I feel like oh, there are so many different things. Okay, the number one, um, if when it comes to um, measurement, when it comes to you know not just analytics, but but you know just kind of the whole world of marketing in, in general as well. There's a, a, a Slack community called the Measure Slack, um, which is uh, just fantastic. Um, so you need to you need to request access to it. Um, I think. Uh, I think if you go to measure.chat, C-H-A-T, measure.chat, there'll be a, a site and there's a, a join link up the very top, which takes you to a form. And then once you've submitted that, um, there'll be a review process. And there's normally like between two to six weeks, depending on, um, you know, backlogs of approvals. And once that, once, yeah. once you're in, you're in the, the, the measure site community, there's a ton of different channels on all things related to uh, mostly analytics, but there's a few marketing channels as well. Really cool discussions on there. Some extremely smart people, um, you know, providing answers, providing commentary uh, on all things that world. Um, if you're interested in analytics as a whole, um, uh, there are some cool podcasts out there. So, for example, one of the ones that I've been listening to for, oh, geez, at least five years is called the, um, the Analytics Power Hour. Um, so, uh, I haven't caught up on recent ones just because I've been so busy, but they check out episodes fairly frequently. Um, and I highly recommend jumping onto that. Um, there, uh, if you're interested in like Google analytics and Google tag manager, um, there are some Facebook groups, um, that you can jump into. So there's the, the GA4 community on Facebook. There's the GTM community as well, which are worth checking out specifically to those areas. Um, uh, when it comes to courses, uh, you have, so uh, Analytics Mania does some great courses on a lot of the Google products, so GTM, GA4 uh, type stuff. Um, uh, there's also uh, the Simmer, S-I-M-M-E-R. The website is teamsimmer.com. Um, Simo and uh, Mari Ahava um, have put together a bunch of courses related to all sorts that are very relevant. You've got JavaScript courses, you've got, um, you know, browser privacy protection courses, uh, BigQuery for GA4, all sorts of stuff. Really cool. Mm. Um, there's, uh, let me see. Uh, there's a podcast that um, Juliana Jackson and Seymour Hava, um, I think they've just released episode three of season two. Um, that one is called the uh, Standard Deviation Podcast. Highly recommend checking that out. Um, also Google provides a bunch of, you know, training education in that world. Um, yeah. so even if you're just looking for courses and just stuff and they're all free, um, oh man, there's tons, there's tons. Yeah. But Sometimes I think the like, platform is a good place to go. Like we say that with, um, our HubSpot mm. customers all the time. We do HubSpot implementations, active campaign implementations mm. for people. And, mm. uh, a lot of the best HubSpot, uh, courses are on mm. HubSpot. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 Um, okay. And I got one more for you, um, mm -hmm. which is, like I said before, like we are a business that helps people build remote teams, offshore teams. Um, you obviously are a very remote team. You are fully, you know, wherever you want to be, whenever you want to be there. What have you found has been important, um, 
what's your sort of approach been to to building those teams, maintaining those teams, getting uh, great results out of of teams that are you know scattered in different locations? Um, all right, so I reckon there's like two buckets. One is the client management, if, if you're in the service based kind of world, and the other is just the general team management. So. Mm-hmm. When it comes to client management, especially if you've got um, a client is in, say, the UK and a uh, client manager is in the US, you've got time zone challenges. So I think one of the first things is it's it's crucial to manage expectations with a client. You'll come across clients that have an instant reply culture. That's brutal. And mm. to be honest, when a client requests for us to be to join their Slack account, I push back on that as much as I can, because if you know if if they've got a back and forth between the teams and it and it's it's cool, don't get me wrong, like that that may be how they operate. As soon as they need instant replies from a third party or an external, that's when things get chaotic. Especially if they've got different time zones. Especially if like especially if the third party isn't engaged on a full time basis. So there needs to be a significant level of of managing managing expectations but also just in general uh setting boundaries and almost kind of training clients to be like we're not replying immediately you just need to accept that if you want us to reply immediately then then we'll set up a 40-hour week retainer i think it's important for um remote workers to be across the tools that enable remote work in as yeah. you know in as seamless as possible manner. They don't necessarily need to be super tech savvy when it comes to like extolling programs and debugging and all that kind of stuff, but at least just being aware of the tools that are out there to make sure that to make sure that they can they can work as effectively as possible. Mm. Um, I, I, I would think- I would support your first point to be the first version of it. I I do only really hire people that are pretty tech savvy. It's very hard to onboard people remotely. Uh, yeah. teach them how to use a system when mm-hmm. they're not particularly good with technology. Uh, I've done it a bunch of times mm. with m- pretty poor results, to be honest, um, yeah. because you're using technology to teach them how to use technology. You yeah. end up on phone calls with people trying to teach them how to log into Zoom uh, mm. so that you can get them to, watch on your screen while you show like honestly i, yeah. I think the first version of it is absolutely fine i'm looking for tech savvy people uh yeah no, I'll, I'll, <laughs> uh, i know I, I i do agree i think there are instances where if you need to explain to someone how to download an install installation file from an from an email or how to go find the the um, the the latest update from a particular website in order to make sure that a, a piece of software if you need to kind of hold their hand during that process, then it can be certainly be challenging. So anyone who's working remote, I think has to have a reasonable understanding of like how to install programs, like how to join, how to install programs in order to join calls, how to, what's also very crucial is the, the, the security aspect. So they need to ideally, in my opinion, password management, like having a password manager is crucial because your whole life, the whole work life is digital, which means you've got to log into everything, which means you need to make sure that you can, 
you'll have you know multi-factor authentication installed. Ideally, you're not using SMS as a form of multi-factor, especially if you're changing countries regularly, but also the fact that SMS is highly insecure. Um, so that's that's also quite important. Um, but but uh, I think the goal with remote work, and remote work doesn't necessarily mean working in another time zone, but it could just mean working in the same company, but somewhere else. Yeah. Um, ideally, you want to try and push as much um, asynchronous work as possible. So I shouldn't have to jump on a call with someone at the same time, at the time that's convenient to them in order for us to have a discussion. There should be an opportunity for me to add a comment in a particular, like a Google sheet or to add, mm, um, yep. you know, to add some, some, some feedback within a mirror board or to add a task within a task management tool like Asana, assign it to someone, set it off. You know, if I'm struggling with something, maybe I can record my screen using Loom and send them over a link instead of instead of saying, "Hey, can can we jump on a call for 15 minutes? I want to, you know, I want to, you know, discuss something with you." So it comes back to understanding the tools that are available to make sure that you can still make progress on your end and then send it off to someone and they can work on it when they're available. Mm, yeah. So the nine to five when everyone's available at the same time kind of breeds that, hey, can we chat for a second? Hey, can you help me with this? Hey, can you do this kind of stuff? But if everyone's able to, as I said, work asynchronously, so it's kind of like I can work on my time, you can work on your time, then that's then that's ideal. Yep. I think there's a, a slight um deviation from that that I would um that I would add. And I think it does depend on like the seniority of the people and where, you know, what kind of person they are to a degree. Like I, I tell everyone, um, if you've got like, if you've got a team in the Philippines, for example, um, and you're in Australia, you should jump on a Zoom with them every day for 15 minutes. Even if it's just to talk shit, even if it's just to have a bit of fun, uh, people are going to, if people are going to be working remote in their bedroom or wherever every day with no human contact except through digital sources, you've got to find some ways to not talk about work and to give them some like cultural relief, I suppose. Um, and so I would just add that as well, like be aware that they're human beings. And so sometimes you got to undigify it if you possibly can. Like I even tell our, our clients, like go and visit your teams in the Philippines, go and meet them in person. It totally changes the digital relationship. Yes, that's a fantastic point. And I, you know, I certainly approach that question in like a practical businessy type focus, but you're 100% right. Because here's the challenge, because like some of our clients that we've been working with for X years, we've never met them in person. So mm. to build that relationship and also, um, so some of the, some of the consultants within the company uh, that I've been working with that are actively managing services um, for the agency I've I've never met them in person before, or or it took like a few years before I met them. So in order to build that relationship with not just clients but also you know um, you know staff, it's crucial to be able to have non-work conversations. Coming back to your point, like I try and make sure that at the start of every single conversation, whether it's a client, whether it's a consultant uh, within the company, whether it's a potential lead, the first five minutes, like. I try and be like, hey, what's going on? How's your day? What's happening? And if someone asks me how I am, like how are things? And I just say, yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Like there's an opportunity there for you to, to show a non-work part of your personality, which mm, is crucial yeah. to building relationships. So if someone asks me how my day's going, I'm like, uh, actually pretty good. I've got my coffee, just made it. I went outside for a little bit and it turns out there's been like, you know, there's, it looks like a, 
like a possum or like a, a fox has been at the rubbish. So I've been like trying to figure out how to prevent that from happening. Whatever, like yeah. the most mundane, the most ridiculous stuff I feel is often the kind of like, oh, it, it, it warms up a relationship. It yeah. helps to, it helps for you to, to, to understand how, who someone is rather than just yeah. what they do or, you know, yeah. how much, whether their business is interesting for the company. And so I think that's crucial as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, regular catch-ups, non-work-related catch-ups are very important. I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, this has been this has been great fun. We'll have to have you uh, have to have you back at some point. Uh, so we're going to wrap it up. Thank you for joining the Rev Up. Uh, before you go, uh, maybe just tell everybody where they can find you, how they might reach out to you, and what they might reach out to you about. Sure. Uh, okay. So social. Um, I don't really use Facebook or Instagram anymore. Um, I use it for like Facebook groups, but that's about it. I very rarely on my feed. Um, if you're interested in like work kind of related stuff, then I guess like LinkedIn is pretty good. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I think it's, yeah, you should just be able to look my name. Look for my name. Actually, there's a lot of John McGowan's in the UK. So maybe even search for like John McGowan Analytics. I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll provide yep. a LinkedIn link. Uh, there's also Twitter. Digital. Oh yeah. So so um, there's also there's also Twitter. So you can find me. I think both my handles on LinkedIn and Twitter are Johnny Wandering. So um, Twitter, I tend to like talk about work stuff, but I'm also super into like privacy and security and and just like also lots of really dumb shit. I like video games, so I like following a bunch of that stuff and I'll tweet yeah. that stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm super into Twitter these days. The website itself um, is awtd.co if you want to go um, have a, you know, check it out and kind of see what we do. Um, but yeah, I guess those are probably like the three main avenues. Uh, and uh, yep. yeah. If you want help, if you want help uh, improving uh, or better understanding or increasing the conversion rates of your uh, of your various channels, your website, all of those different places. Johnny's the man to go and talk to. Thanks for joining us and uh, we'll see you soon. Ben, you're an absolute legend. Love your work, mate. So good to catch <laughs> up and I'll uh, chat to you soon. See you, mate.